<laughs> Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's June 21st, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by Jim Swift and Kelly Jane Torrance of The Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. All right. We uh, we obviously need to talk about uh, the president uh, caving on this, uh, the issue of family separation. It's uh, or 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 or, or, or Diddy. Uh, just a couple of things yesterday, and and just bear with me if you just in, indulge me because I'm sitting here in Wisconsin. You're in D.C. Uh, we were talking yesterday about this very interesting um, swing state model uh, that that uh, that the Weekly Standard has has launched, and we're talking about you know the the chances of Republicans taking the Senate, and um, the over the model has. Uh, Tammy Baldwin is an overwhelming favor for re-election here in the state of Wisconsin. And yesterday afternoon, there's a new poll out from the Marquette University Law School, which is considered to be the gold standard, although they got the 2016 presidential race wrong. You always have to have that asterisk there. Um, and they had a really interesting result. Yes, it shows that uh, Tammy Baldwin is up by either 11 points or 9 points over the possible Republican nominees. But at the same time, Scott Walker is leading any of the possible Democratic nominees. And it's it's the interesting phenomena about Scott Walker is that the numbers never move. They're always the same. Almost nobody in Wisconsin is undecided about Scott Walker. They found out that only 3% of the voters have no opinion. On the other hand, nobody knows any of the Democrats who are running. There is something like 10 Democrats running for governor here in Wisconsin. The leading candidate is a guy named Tony Evers, who's the education superintendent. 61% of Democratic voters don't know enough about him to have an opinion. Think about that. The other candidates are in the 70, 80% realm. So, you know, even though we all focus on these campaigns and we live and die by elections, here in the state of Wisconsin, where let's face it, these are you know educated, engaged voters, they are clearly not dialed in in either the Senate race or uh, the, uh, the the governor's race. They're not paying that much attention. But I do think it's interesting that the same poll shows Baldwin with a strong lead and Walker with a strong lead. I I still am looking for that unicorn voter who's going to vote for Governor Scott Walker and then also vote for Senator Tammy Baldwin. I don't know if those swing voters exist anymore, but uh, that's that's certainly the state of play right now. And I always think of, of course, because I am a Wisconsinite, that Wisconsin is uh, is kind of a barometer of these sorts of things. But uh, it would be it would be a slightly bizarre um, throwback result if Walker was reelected and the Tammy Baldwin was reelected. You know, Remember of, when that used to, used to happen one of, many, many years ago? One of our uh, digital guys named Brad Tidwell, he uh, he made a point to me that I, I hadn't really thought of in our Virginia primary here where uh, Corey Stewart, who's bound to lose and is you know, a, a flawed candidate and a flawed person, uh, won the uh, Senate primary. But on the other hand, in um, Northern Virginia, we had Barbara Comstock uh, win her primary. And it wasn't, wasn't you know, a, a big win. It was, it was closer. It was like 60-40. But you look at the kind of crossover, and what kind of people vote for Barbara Comstock and Corey Stewart? I mean, it seemed very odd. I'd like, uh, who are those people? I'd like to meet them. Well, you know, it's interesting because, uh, my, you know, I'm I'm originally uh, from Canada, and, and growing up, you know, my dad, his favorite president was Richard Nixon, but his favorite prime minister was Pierre Trudeau. Now, I think a lot of people can't imagine somebody who liked mm. both of those figures, but 
you know, when you, if you sort of dig deeper, you might you might see something. You know, one one thing I thought was interesting about that that poll you mentioned, Charlie, is that apparently there are fifteen percent of people who said they didn't know enough about Tammy Baldwin to form an opinion. Yeah, I mean, she's been in office for almost uh, six years now. I, you know, you you would think that might. Uh, Give her a little, give the uh, constituents a little bit of information. But, you know, I wonder how much of it is, is that too, is, is, you know, name recognition counts for a lot. And, you know, despite 15% not knowing much about her, the rest do. And and she is the sitting senator, just like, you know, everyone knows who Scott Walker is. Yeah, Um, but they're not, they're not quite as firm on, on her as they are on Walker. No, that's true. Walker is, I mean, that is just in concrete. And so, you know, it's it's certainly likely he's going to get the exact number of votes that he always gets, which is he'll get 52, 52 right. percent of the vote. And that's and and that's it. You know, uh, you, you mentioned, though, the the name recognition problem, even for a an incumbent U.S. Mm. senator, it was much worse for Ron Johnson. Ron Johnson mm. had been a senator, been doing all sorts of things in Washington, and nobody back home had any idea what was going on. And, you know, that that may be just the the focus, uh, the tradition. Now, is that. Is that is yeah. that a problem with him and his office? Then should they be communicating, getting this stuff out more to the people back at home? Well, but also this the it's the focus has been yes, I, th- I think so. And he fixed the problem and got reelected. Um, but I think this was one of the reasons why he was considered to be so vulnerable. Um, you know, because the media, frankly, you know, they, you have a big election for U.S. Senate, they go out to Washington D.C. and they become invisible. You know, mm-hmm. we had Herb Cole. I don't know if you recall him, the owner of the former owner of the Milwaukee Bucks. Mm-hmm. He was in the Senate for a very, very long time, and nobody ever heard of him. I mean, it was just like he became lucky guy, <laughs> invisible. I I do have a, a theory that is based in absolutely nothing about the the governor's race the fact that uh, nobody knows who the democrats are running you know the the leading candidate has 25% of the vote in the primary um and and the the name recognition factor is is a, as i mentioned before is is virtually non-existent i think maybe it's a phenomenon of the trump centric nature of our politics that mm-hmm. everything is so focused on washington dc and the trump administration that that even though there'll be fallout in local elections, nobody's really paying attention. Mm-hmm. At least that's in in that, Wisconsin. That, that's okay. fair. That's so fair. Let's, let's talk about the president's uh, uh, the president's reversal yesterday. Very uncharacteristic of Donald Trump ever to cave in or back off. And yet uh, yesterday he issued what he said was an executive order that will stop family separation. So we'll talk about whether or not that will actually happen a little bit later. But right now, why did he do it, Kelly Jane? Well, the pressure and from both sides of the aisle just became too enormous, I think. And, you know, his big mistake in this, I think, was really saying that he couldn't do anything about it. You know, he it was this, over and over. This was the you know, these this story was, you know, anything with with graphic, you know, images, uh, you know, images that that really kind of tear at people's heartstrings. That's. You know, in our in our you know news cycle, that's that's something you don't you don't always get that, and so it led the news really for a week. And he kept saying, as you say over and over, I can't do anything about this. It's the Democrats in Congress. It's their fault. It's past administrations. I can't do anything. And then he signs this executive order, and uh, you know, bad move. You know, if you uh, if you were you know, obviously he wasn't planning on doing that. And even if you listen to him during the signing ceremony, he said. You know, it's a bit of a dilemma between having heart and being strong. And then he said, you know, maybe I'd rather be strong. I think that was kind of a hint there. He, he really didn't want to do this. 
Um, but I, 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 yeah, and I, and I think the answer to this question is the answer to almost every question about the Trump administration, which is because television. The exactly. Power, you know, once again, the power of televised images, the way, yes. in fact, this 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 issue metastasized so quickly, it would not have metastasized had there not been photos, had there not been audio tapes, had there not been videotapes. Uh, the president, um, in, in, in terms of, by the way, of, of, of messaging, this was probably, and there's a lot of competition here. I think you can make the case that this was uh, the the worst communications fiasco of the Trump administration, where you had uh, members of the administration issuing explanations or statements that flatly contradicted one another. Was it a deterrent? No, it's not a deterrent. Um, you know, can you do this? Can you not do this? Uh, one story in the Washington Post documented how they had changed their story 14 times. Wow. So and, and you know, there's there's an you know. Uh, whether you agree with this or not, you can see that there's an they could make an, an argument policy based um, of why they're doing this, why this is happening. But they didn't even really do that very well. You know, when you're quoting the Bible to justify a position rather than what is actually going on on the ground, you you do have a problem. And, and I agree, Charlie, it's this this was a fiasco. And you think, you know, is there nobody that's uh, committed to messaging in this in this administration? And you think that with a uh, you know, at first a campaign, then an administration really so focused on television and, and knowing that they won in part because of all of the media attention uh, Donald Trump got. You think they of all people might understand the importance of having a consistent, uh, well-crafted message getting out there? Well, this was also one of the very first times when you, you really had some cracks in the in the Trump coalition. You you had Franklin Graham. You had some mm. of the evangelical Christians who have been uh, willing to swallow just about everything else. You also had uh, you know some figures on on Fox News who were willing to break bad. And clearly, uh, you had congressional Republicans who were in you know and you know I, I want to say panic, but I mean obviously I think that they there's a there's a degree of sincerity as well. You know when you have Ted Cruz coming out. <laughs> proposing a standalone bill, uh, you realize that uh, that there was a political problem that Donald Trump was not going to be able to uh, get around without doing something. So, uh, you know, Jim Swift, your, 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 your take on why this issue played out differently. I mean, this is his go-to issue. Immigration, being tough on immigration is, is about as Trumpian as you could possibly get. So I, I, I think that there, this 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 was uh, this was something pretty unusual yesterday. Yeah, I mean, there's I think there's a big crossover in the the pro life movement. Uh, the the Catholics and evangelical Christians uh, kind of came out and said, you know, you, you we are a pro life party that doesn't believe in abortion. We believe in the sanctity of human life. How is this consistent with that? And that that's where a lot of the the, the cracks uh, came from, as you noted earlier. But I, I would I would contend that this is far from over, uh, executive order notwithstanding. We haven't gone back to uh, catch and release and, and other sorts of things. My understanding, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Kelly or Charlie, is that the, the families are going to be detained now together. Yes. And yes. that is going to result in, I mean, you, you don't just flip a switch on a policy like, like they did do, in fact, without preparing for it. And then now all the families are going to be detained where in the past they, they really weren't, at least in the numbers that I expect they probably will be. 
And we also have this federal consent decree, the Flores, the Flores consent decree, right. uh, which limits uh, the the time in which people can be detained to uh, families can be detained for twenty days. And the reason my children under- can only be detained for for twenty, 20 days. days yes. Right. Um, well, I mean, so, so which means so which you- means that when the twenty day point hits, that they're going to have to release the children and the parents. Yes, exactly. means we are then back to catch and release unless somehow. They overturn that consent decree, which seems kind of a reach. Very unlikely. And consent de- consent decrees, I've I've written about them and studied them and worked on them worked on this issue on the Hill. They they rarely rarely ever go away. Uh, but we're go- we're probably also going to run into an issue where maybe Trump will violate Flores and um, mm-hmm. we'll keep people past twenty days, and then we're going to have lawsuits about that. Uh, so th- this issue, uh, I mean, the families may be reunited in the near future when when they when they start uh, complying with the new EO, but we're we're probably not going to to have this issue disappear, sort of like we d- well, did with Dreamers. No, it d- doesn't solve the problem because first of all, we don't know what's going to happen to the two thousand plus children who've already been separated. Uh, there were reports that they had no intention of grandfathering in those children, so that problem is not solved. You still have the problem of. What do you do at the 20 days? You know that the president is going to continue using the the harshest possible rhetoric, you know, rapists, murderers, uh, animals, bad uh, people, infesting bad the country. I mean, he, he, he's made that very clear in Minnesota last night. So I would think that the next phase is uh, going to be, you know, when people realize this problem is not fixed. And then, of course, we get the blame game and the Trump administration will blame this on the federal courts and continue to blame it on Congress, which appears poised to not solve this problem. Well, you know, one thing that that uh, was interesting to me, Charlie, is part of the Ted Cruz bill would have uh, increased the number, for example, of, of judges so that we can get these cases through the system. It. Exactly. Would have doubled the number of judges so we can get these these cases through the system faster and you know get them, get them out before the uh, get, a, get it done before the 20 days. Well, you'll notice Trump uh, tweeted, I believe, just this morning, you know, why should we have to hire, you know, more judges? So why do I, you know, and he's, he's yeah. complaining. Why should I spend more money on you know these these judges, and he, you know, to him, it's uh, you know to to the rest of us, it's like, well, yeah, if you you know you're getting an increased flow of a certain uh, group of of people, you want to get them through the system faster. You might have to increase the number of judges, get rid of the backlog. But Trump does not see it that way, and so there's another um, issue that I think one possible solution to this problem. Trump is immediately saying, no, I'm not, I'm not supporting that solution. Uh, how, how is this going to play with his base? And I don't just mean the Ann Coulter base, but the general, the generalized base. I mean, clearly he was showing a little bit of concern to reassure his supporters in Minnesota last night that that he was still going to be strong. He was still going to be harsh. Is is there going to be any any whiplash from the folks who, in fact, had gone out there and defended the separation of families who said this is not that that big a deal that the now that the president is saying okay we don't want to do that is is there going to be any whiplash or will people simply fall into line jim no you know when it comes to pundits uh, the the people who were white knighting for this policy already have large, largely lost the respect of their peers uh, because this it's not like someone was just totally normal and then came out of nowhere and were like you know this is actually a great policy these people are routine defenders uh, or or smoke screeners for the president so I'm not sure they'll pay much of a price because yeah. I mean they're they're the you know their their approval ratings by other people in the industry uh, are, are pretty low. Um, you know they're and they have a lot, they've got a, had a lot of practice at it too. Yeah, you know <laughs> that's true. But uh, you know there were the members of Congress uh, were, were 
I, I think, smart to try and avoid talking about this issue because unless they were going out of their way on the, on the right uh, to to speak out against it, because, you know, you saw when Trump went to the House Republican conference meeting, uh, he called out Mark Sanford. Hey, Mark, great election no. you had there, buddy. And people booed and uh, and, and, you know, were, were, were mad about that because it was it was it was a prickish thing to do. And it was kind of what we should expect from this guy. And, and, and Mark Sanford was liked among some of the stronger Trump supporters. He's a member of the Freedom Caucus. He had, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and plus they knew him. He was a colleague to, to mock him in that particular mm-hmm. way. But of course, uh, we're, we're sort of we're sort of used to that. By the way, you know, before I get into something else, I, I I stumbled across something. Actually, that's that's not fair. I was actually on a on a public radio show yesterday, and they played for they played a clip from Ronald Reagan in 1980. This was during a debate over immigration that he had with George W. Bush, and in, 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 in the the whole George topic H. W. was how how did how did uh, Republicans get from there to here? And this is a reminder that the Republican Party, the conservative movement, was not always as obsessed with cracking down on cross-border immigration as it is right now. Listen to what, listen to what Ronald Reagan said back in 1980. Rather than making them or talking about putting up a fence, why don't we work out some recognition of our mutual problems make it possible for them to come here legally with a work permit and then while they're working and earning here they pay taxes here and when they go on to go back they can go back and they can cross and open the border both ways by understanding their problems all right jim swift that's that soundbite if 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 someone said that now they would be denounced as an absolute rhino squish wouldn't they they would. And you've seen the transformation of the Republican Party and immigration has been such a large, uh, big issue for the a large part of the base uh, for many years. And, and many people who uh, go back and, and it, it, I think it might either be selective memory or maybe cognitive dissonance. They go back and, oh, the 1986 Reagan amnesty, you know, we can't have that again. And I had an article earlier this week uh, on Monday, I believe, at the Weekly Standard about the last best hope for immigration reform in 2007 when uh, my former boss, John Kyle, senator from Arizona, uh, worked with uh, none other than Ted Kennedy, the you know, uh, um, the, the point man for the Senate Democrats at the time uh, for at least a decade or some more on immigration. And Republicans got everything that they could have hoped for. Um, and, you know, I, I just think back to how it ended up dying and it ended up dying about uh, temporary labor, which is you know part of the, the quote right here about work visas and people can go back and all these other sorts of things. Big, big labor sponsored an amendment that was intended to kill the entire legislation and a bunch of Republicans uh, voted for big labor, a little handout for big labor. And, uh, and some Democrats, of course, all running for president. You can guess who uh, did, too. And it lost by one vote. And once that thing was part of the bill, everyone knew that the leaders knew that the, the, the votes weren't there to pass the underlying package. But we would have gotten border security. The Democrats would have gotten uh, a pathway to citizenship and not an easy one uh, for the 12 million uh, folks in the country still illegally. We would have gotten um, 
uh, reform, we would have gotten a point system similar to what Canada does. That's merit based. Basically, Republicans had an opportunity 11 years ago to get all of what President Trump has asked for and much, much more. And uh, they basically blew that opportunity. And 11 years later, 12 million people are still in the country illegally, more or less. More are coming by the day. And, uh, you know, we're in a weaker negotiating position. And I don't think the Democrats are as willing to negotiate with Trump, especially how he's been handling all of this. So I'm not very optimistic that Congress no. is, is going to um, somehow put on their thinking caps and come up with a great solution here. It just, it just doesn't seem very likely. And, and, you know, Charlie, you bring up a good point asking about Trump's base because his base has been very anti-immigration. Um, you know, and I have a I have a bit of a theory on this. Um, you know, in the run up to the executive order, you actually, you know, you had Melania Trump make a statement mm-hmm. saying, you know, this pulls at her heartstrings. This is terrible. And you had Trump himself telling people at that same meeting at which he mocked Mark Sanford that Ivanka uh, Trump, his daughter, uh, said to him, Daddy, what are we doing about this? So he's again, you know, as he's done before, using women in his life to sort of show he has some heart and soften, soften his image a bit. But what I found was very interesting is at the signing ceremony, he said, my wife feels strongly about this. And then he said, well, I feel strongly about this. And I'm wondering, is is he almost sending a message uh, there to his base, which might be, eh, you know, I, I didn't want to do this, but nah, the wife made, made things uncomfortable at home for me. Yeah, I kind of had to do it. Um, you know, so maybe it's a bit of a far-fetched theory, but I, I do wonder if he is if he is using uh, stuff like that to, to try to sort of, you know, let the base know, I didn't really want to do this. I kind of got forced into it. You know, that's 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 as plausible as any theory. And I will um, say, I, I should mention, I, I actually did uh, write this up for, for Spectator USA. So uh, if you if you want to see the full theory there. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, I, I have a piece up at the, the, uh, the Weekly Standard right now on the new cruelty. And it was another thing that sort of reminded me watching watching the debate over this. Um, in fact, Peter Baker also has a great piece in the New York Times talking about the way in which, uh, you know, tr- Trump's angry, uh, vicious rhetoric has has really reshaped the way we talk about politics. And I, I, I was I was reminded of that scene from uh, L.A. story where uh, Chevy Chase, the Chevy Chase character comes in. And he wants a table at uh, this uh, this uh, restaurant called La Idiot. La, what's it? Uh, Lidio, which is actually spelled the idiot. And uh, the maitre d' who's played by Patrick Stewart says, well, you know, you can't have a good one. And Chevy Chase says, well, is the new cruelty? Um, and you know, Patrick Stewart says, yes. And I thought, you know, the new cruelty really does, um, you know, provide a, a label or a rubric for the time we're living in. And I thought about that when I was watching Corey Lewandowski, who is on Fox. And uh, he's he's reacting to a story about a 10-year-old girl with Down syndrome who is separated from her mother. And Corey Lewandowski makes this wah-wah sound. And by the way, the, the every, everybody else in the media is, is, is spelling that as womp-womp. I don't hear the no, P, and I'm, no I'm, I am willing to die on this mountain. And if you, if, you, if you watch the, the uh, recording, uh, his um, interlocutor actually also repeats it. He's like, are you saying womp-womp to me? And he doesn't yeah. use the P either. Yeah, I mean, I'm obsessed enough about this that I actually was like watching his lips. But anyway, well, I had to I mean, watch you know, the video this, this because so, I heard so about crass. this and I was so shocked by it, and I thought he couldn't possibly. They must be mischaracterizing it. So I actually went back and and looked at it, and yeah. no, it's there's no mischaracterization. You described it perfectly. 
but it is it is this 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 is but this is part of the the the, the marker in in the Trump era. It it is this this swaggering callousness. It is this studied insensitivity. It's it's this confusion of the sort of brutalist rhetoric with 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 strength. I mean, look, Lewandowski is like the lowest of the low. There's no question about it. But but you know. What I asked in this piece was, was his insensitive jibe really off message or was it simply a cruder version of the new cruelty that has displaced whatever was left of compassionate conservatism, which is like, wow, compassionate conservatism. <laughs> How long ago was was that? Because, you know, really, when you think about it, you know, what the appeal of of many of these policies are is is how, uh, you know, broad they are, how uh, you know how how in, insensitive they are. I mean, when you're talking about you know a, a ban on all Muslims, the mass mm. deportation of all illegals, you know, a wall that will shut out you know anyone coming across the border. I mean, the, the zero tolerance policy that then results in family separation is not inconsistent with all of that. And you do get this this real sense. You know, that that the Trump's hardcore supporters really do like these policies that treat, you know, large numbers of people as, as an undifferentiated mass, that they're not thinking of them as as individuals. You know, they, they are being being lumped together, which means that you have to cultivate a, a a real callousness toward the human cost of all of this. So. Again, very very well life. said, Charlie. And, and you know, when, when Trump made his announcement in, in 2015 that he was running for president, that's when he talked about, um, you know, Mexicans as being rapists, murderers. Yeah. I mean, it was right from the beginning. He, you know, he wasn't hiding it. He was making it clear. And there were some people that who were actually attracted by that sort of rhetoric, as shocking as it may be to the rest of us. And the lesson he drew from that was exactly. this works. I said this, I got the blowback, and I was elected president of the United States. Well, Corey Lewandowski, though, he, he, with the uh, recent uh, charges uh, that the New York Attorney General's office announced uh, regarding uh, Trump's charity, you know, you see that Corey Lewandowski is on paper asking the charity to uh, coordinate its uh, dealings uh, to help benefit the campaign. You know, I mean, I'm not an attorney, but if I were his attorney, I'd say, you know, you know, maybe try and paint yourself as sympathetic. You're seeing that from Michael Cohen, who's, re- you know, when he announced he was leaving the RNC and he shouldn't have been there in the first place, much less uh, after, um, you know, recent events. But he at least is smart enough to, you know, release some sort of thing, making him look like a sympathetic guy, which, you know, he's not really a nice guy. <laughs> but Lewandowski is just out there going womp womp, and the P is silent, I contend. But um, it, it, it's just, I, I don't know. I guess Corey Lewandowski wants to go down with the go down with the ship. I mean, he, he if he were to be charged with any violation, and I'm not sure he could be, uh, again, not being an attorney, and uh, I, I think maybe the focus just on the Trump charity, but you know, if he, if he if if in all of this he gets wrapped up in something, you know, you don't want to you want you want public opinion to be on your side. But I guess in Trump world, uh, having public opinion be that you're a monster and a terrible person is is actually an an asset. Well, that's that's the point. Is that you 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 know I know you guys spend time on on social media, and there's no question about it that that it has become coarser, it has become mm. cruder, and there is this embrace of this embrace of cruelty as a sign of toughness, of, as a sign of of strength. Now we've we've seen that before, and I'm not going to make those historical parallels here, but yeah, you know, I will I say, Charlie, you know, believe- I. 
I, I've I don't s- believe I don't believe that people are are either mean or you know necessarily completely mean or good. I mean, maybe this is not going to be as clear as I want it to be, but this is this is where you know thought leaders that influence our you know that appeal to our better angels have an impact. That that what's happening is it's a signal to people to embrace some of their darker impulses and convince them that it is this binary choice: you are either cruel and harsh or you are weak. And, you know, em- that empathy is a sign of weakness. And and, that, and that's damaging. I'm sorry. You, go ahead. No, you're you're exactly right, Charlie. And I, I was just going to, you know, for for comparison's sake, um, you know, I did uh, I did some television on, on during the uh, the 2011 or sorry, 2000, uh, 2012 election with um, when Mitt Romney was the candidate. And, you know, I got some people disagreed with what I had to say, but nothing really nasty. You know, go forward to 2016 and, you know, you know I have people calling me the C word, um, you know, all kinds of, you know, very anti-female uh, and other comments. And, you know, you sort of think, well, what what's changed? And I, I do wonder, as you say, if 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 people are, are making it look like, hey, it's it's not only OK to, to speak in, in certain terms and to, you know, have this sort of nasty swagger. It's not only OK, but actually it's going to help you. Then yeah, I do. I do agree that it um, it it sort of cha- changes, you know, changes people a bit. Um, like you say, to embrace, uh, you know, the darker side of, of human nature. You, you know, the one thing I did not include in in the in the article was something that was in the back of my mind that uh, you know, describing the new cruelty as the new age. You know, I mean, mm. Franklin Roosevelt gave us the New Deal. I think this is the new cruelty. Um, a, a a a movement that did not that, w- that was not embracing cruelty would never have embraced you know my old friend uh, sheriff david clark the way they are yeah. them, by the way um today's daily standard podcast is brought to you by express vpn this is the world leading vpn provider that lets you privately and securely use the internet at blazing fast speeds without being tracked by anyone and I downloaded this and have now have this on three of my devices. And I cannot believe that I didn't do this beforehand because, look, the reality is you're being tracked. We're all being tracked. Mobile carriers, uh, Internet service providers and potentially hackers all have access to your web history and your Internet data. So what ExpressVPN does, it encrypts your traffic and all of your sensitive data while masking your IP address, concealing your online activity from everyone. Look, with all the news lately about data hacks and breaches, it's hard not to worry about digital privacy. No matter what you do online, your mobile carrier and your Internet provider are tracking it all. Comcast, Verizon, Time Warner, the list goes on. Companies like these have a record of every single thing you do. This isn't paranoia. This is just reality. Every website you visit, every email you send, it's ridiculous. So that's why I decided to take back my privacy by using ExpressVPN, and I'm not going to use the Internet without it. And I've been referring it to my friends and family over the last several days, and every one of them has the same reaction, which is like, why did I not do this before this? So, again, you can have this the easy-to-use app. It is extremely easy to download and use. You can have it on your iPhone. You can have it on your laptop. You can have it on your, your main com- computer. And, again... If you're on an unsecure Wi-Fi and you want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your data, ExpressVPN is for you. If you don't want your provider recording your entire online history and then selling it to the whole world, ExpressVPN is for you. So to take back your Internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free, 
free, go to expressvpn.vpn.com slash standard. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash standard for three months free with a one-year package. Every day you use the internet without ExpressVPN, you're putting sensitive information at risk. So don't put this off. Protect your online data with ExpressVPN today. Um, so, you know, we've been talking about this immigration issue, which I don't think is going to go away anytime soon. Um, I, I think we're going to be hearing a lot about this. But uh, this is a good time to step back and recognize that the rest of the world is still going on. It, it's kind of extraordinary to think that the North Korean summit was what? That was last week? Crazy, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. It, the, the, the pace. Remember when the, the North Korean summit was the dominant issue? We're several months you know, uh, away from the, the administration's ending of the Iran deal. You know, the rest of the world is still going on. And, and Kelly, you have been tracking and writing and reporting about what has been going on, particularly in Iran. So let's take in the, in the, in the few minutes we have left, you know, let's just re- remember that, you know, that the you know, United States and, and what's happening in Washington, what's happening in the Trump White House are not the sum total of things that are happening. What's going on in Iran right now, especially with the uncertainty about the the Iran nuclear program? Well, thank you for asking, Charlie. And, you know, I have to say your, you know, your introduction reminded me actually of a tweet I saw yesterday. And one Iran analyst at the uh, Atlantic Council, Barbara Slavin, a former co-worker of mine, actually, she actually tweeted, um, you know, when, you know, it's quite a day when Khomeini can, you know, use something and talk about human rights in the United States. And I just was shocked. I mean, yes, this this uh, immigration thing is, is an issue and it's there's been some terrible things happening, but nothing, nothing like what's going on in Iran. So earlier this week, um, a 51-year-old man, Mohammed Salas, was executed. And the, both the U.S. State Department and even the European Union actually condemn this. And this man is a, a Sufi, which is a, um, it's a sort of type of Islamic mysticism. And it's, it's frowned upon, of course, by the mullahs who rule Iran. And, uh, you know, the indignities committed against this man were continued after his death. He, he was buried far from his family. There was actually a guard there uh, and anti-riot police because they didn't want people seeing the body because they didn't want people to see the full extent of the torture he underwent uh, while he was imprisoned. And, you know, he was executed for supposedly uh, driving a at, at a protest, supposedly driving a bus over some uh, policeman. Well, he was arrested hours before that crime was committed. So there are a lot of questions about this, but the man was executed. And, and now uh, it looks like any day now another man is going to be executed. Uh, again, very suspicious circumstances. And this is uh, Ramin Hossein Panahi. OK, this is a 24-year-old man, and he's, uh, he's a Kurd. And his, his alleged crimes are membership in a Kurdish nationalist group and drawing a weapon on IRGC members. That's the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. So this, this man that we don't. You know, it's hard to say whether he did this or not because there's not there's no fair trials in Iran. But this man is is going to probably undergo execution any day now. And so, 
you know, these are the things uh, we should be worried about. And I have to say, so why, just today. Why are these things happening now? Is this part of a crackdown? Is, is, it is. Is it, a, is it a, a show of strength? Is it a sign of anxiety? How do you interpret why this is happening? No, that's a great question, Charlie. And, you know, the protests that began in Iran on December 28th, um, and they were very intense uh, for a couple of weeks, and they're still going on. You know, the intensity is, has sort of come and gone in waves, but they are still going on. And the regime is very worried because this is the first time really since the Islamic Revolution that you've seen people of all uh, demographic areas that are coming out and protesting. And they're not just calling for, hey, you didn't count my vote or this. They are saying death to the dictator, death to Irani, death to Khomeini, they, they, they see that the only way their problems are going to end is with the end of this corrupt, murderous regime. And sort of an Iranian thing, death to blank. It's, 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 you know, it sounds, it sounds better in Farsi, I always think. It's this, Does you know, it? marge, barge, dictator. It's a very, and you know, I have to say when I, whenever I, you know, quote in my story some of the chants they use at protests, they almost always rhyme in Farsi, but doesn't always translate to English. The, the Persians are, you know, a very poetic people and uh, they have been for centuries. So, you know, even their, even their political protests will, will have a bit of, of poetry to them. Um, and, you know, just today, Angela Merkel, uh, the German chancellor, uh, said that she is very concerned about Iranian aggression. And she talked about, you know, uh, what's going on in the country itself, its ballistic missile program, what it's doing in Yemen, what it's doing in Syria. Um, and it's interesting because she said, you know, well, we, we still want to keep that that nuclear agreement, but we're worried about all these other things. And, of course, you know, my answer was, well, you know, why was there such a focus on nuclear weapons in the first place? I mean, obviously, we don't want them to have nukes. It's it's bad. But but to say, well, we're going to give you uh, we're going to lift sanctions, give you money, let you do all this other bad stuff, which really is a, is a humanitarian crisis that is far more urgent. Uh, we're going to let you do all that. And just, you know, to, to keep and again, the Irania, of course, did not keep them from from getting nuclear weapons. Right. It just put it off. And that, I think, was was one of the fatal flaws of the Iran deal, which was that it, that it did not deal with uh, with their adventurism, didn't deal with their support for terrorism, didn't deal with the intercontinental ballistic missiles. So never addressed. Exactly. And that stuff's worse, isn't it? Uh, it is. Charlie. It, and, it, I, you it, know, one one fun, you know, one sort of, uh, you know, uh, funny thing that you sort of think this is a big world. Well, the world the World Cup's going on right now, soccer or football, as they as they say in, in Europe and elsewhere. And, it was, you know, th so there was a game, uh, the, Iran's first game versus Morocco. Um, it, there was headlines made because a, a woman had a banner that said, support Iranian women to attend stadiums, hashtag no ban for women. Now, of course, in Iran, women are not allowed to go to stadiums. And, uh, you know, it's hilarious because one of the uh, one of the reasons the regime is given is they're they're worried they don't want women to hear people swearing. I mean, this, you know, this is the height of uh, patriarchal paternalism. Well, so she was going to do the same thing at Iran's next game against Spain, which, of course, just happened this week. And uh, she was blocked from protesting. You know, she showed them she actually had approval, approval from, uh, you know, the, the FIFA organization um, to, to do this. She, you know, gotten approval for her banner and they, they agreed to it. And she, they searched her, held her for two hours, took the banner. Um, so clearly, you know, the Iranian regime was not happy about this and, and sent a message to their Russian friends. Don't let this woman do that again. And you have, you know, you have to think a regime that is so worried about a banner saying, let's let women, you know, see their 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 national team at stadiums too. a regime that finds that 
threatening. You know, this is this is a regime that's that's certainly on the edge. Um, uh, you know, and women yeah, actually, it's funny because women actually have have worn fake beards and wigs to to go and see games. It's uh, it's it's quite something. And you know, you even have Saudi Arabia, which people always say is one of the worst regimes for women. Even they now let uh, women attend sporting games. So you know, the tide is is shifting everywhere. But uh, you know, these Iranian mullahs, they they realize that. They need that scapegoat. It, it helps them keep power because when they have all these police on the streets policing what women wear, what they're doing, uh, that lets them, uh, you know, police other things as well. So it's it's something that they do need to keep to survive. And, uh, you know, I have to say it's it's amazing that the World Cup actually sort of showed an example of, of how uh, how how just on the edge this regime is. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Kelly Jane Torrance, Jim Swift, thank you for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.